before I ever met with Tim, I had a conversation with um, the Burberry chairman, and I didn't tell him anything important public company, but I simply said, you need to know, I need to think a lot this summer. And it was so interesting because he just looked at me and he goes, don't tell me it's Apple. From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, she's one of the highest-ranking females inside of Apple. So what made Angela Arendt, a self-proclaimed non-techie, leave her dream job as CEO of Burberry to run Apple's retail strategy? And what exactly does the store of the future look like? You're about to find out. Angela Arendt, welcome to No Limits. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you. We're here in Chicago on location at the brand-new Apple store. You just took me on a tour of the whole spot. Really, really impressive. You have a really impressive career yourself. The Senior Vice President of Retail for Apple. You joined Apple in 2014, former CEO of Burberry, where you led a major turnaround of the company and and really revolutionized their business model and helped them get situated for the current era where so many things are happening online and digital. Um, But you grew up not that far from here. About a three and a half hour drive. A three and a half hour drive from here in Chicago in New Palestine, Indiana. One of six kids. What was that like as a kid? Did you did you want to go into business as a little girl? No, no. <laughs> um, funny sports. I mean, we, you know, grew up doing doing every sport imaginable from golf to tennis to swimming to and uh, and I, it's funny growing up. You don't really think about it. We were all in the band. We could have been a band, our whole family. And, you were in a band. Well, I was in the school band. You'll never guess what I played. What but. was your instrument? <laughs> well, the French horn. The and French you, horn. Well, that's only because my older sister played the flute, another sister the clarinet, another <laughs> sister the saxophone. My brother the drums. It was like the only instrument that was left. So yes, I can play the French horn. <laughs> Do you still play? No. No, no, I haven't played in absolutely years, but, uh, but, but I think when you're growing up and, you know, when you have six kids, your mother just keeps you incredibly busy and everything. And, and you watch what your, you know, brothers and sisters are doing. And, and I'm, I'm very close to the sister who's a year and a half older than I am. So there's six of us in seven years. So we are like really, really close and, 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 you know, three of us in a bedroom. So, um, but when, when my sisters went to college and then I would visit them and I think that's where you, and it really wasn't business as much. I, um, and I've always had a creative side, so I grew up sewing and drawing, and, and I actually thought I'd be a designer, so almost the opposite of business. But I, I went to university, and I had a professor my first year in say that I actually wasn't very um, talented from a design standpoint, but I had a pretty strong opinion, so she called me a merchant. <laughs> so uh, that's how I kind of ended up in merchandising and marketing. You think about these experiences or exchanges that you have in the course of your career that can literally change everything, and it sounds like that professor set you on a different path than what you might have envisioned for yourself. Yeah. And I felt so blessed that she did it in the first year. Um, you know, and I try to do that, you know, is, is now you have so many employees, et cetera. And I think, you know, if you can just be quick and honest and, you know, anytime you have the ability to help guide and direct somebody, because absolutely, it was a pivotal, pivotal moment. 
So you have this vision that you want to go into merchandising, right? What did you ultimately study in school for that? Merchandising. Merchandising and marketing. And marketing. So when you went out looking for those first jobs, those original jobs, what were you looking for? Um, well, they, they unfortunately weren't in New Palestine or were not at Ball State where I went to university. Um, and there wasn't the, a little bit in Indianapolis, but I, um, I was done with school one day and I went to the airport and jumped a flight to New York the next and um, had one or two contacts. That was it. But I was looking to get into the apparel industry, get into fashion, specifically in merchandising, not in the design, but working closely with the design teams. And how do you actually bring that, bring their vision to life for customers? That's pretty, pretty gutsy of you to get on an airplane the day after you graduate, no job, come to New York City, knocking on doors. How did you get in the first door that you ended up working for? Well, you know, it's funny. I, um, I could have gone home, but I was afraid if I went home before I went to New York, that I might never go. So I thought I can't, I can't make that pit stop, right? Just have to go. And then I had only one or two connections. And there was a gentleman in Indianapolis that my parents played golf with, and he owned a specialty store, a men's specialty store. And he worked with a buying office in New York, and I'll never forget Charlie Cooper. And so I went and met with Charlie Cooper, and and uh, you know, young and green and starry eyed, and and you know, he made one phone call to a menswear company. Well, it wasn't exactly what I wanted to start, but it was a foot in the door. And, and that's what you need when you're young. And, and so I got hired in a, in a sales position, which wasn't necessarily what I wanted either, but it didn't matter. I was in the fashion industry and uh, the rest is kind of history. How did you get from that sales position ultimately to Burberry? Wow. How long do you have? <laughs> um, you know, it's a series. I, I, I only had about three jobs in New York and, 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 and I was actually at that menswear company able to get into a little bit of merchandising, but um, but then went to a women's wear company, Jeffrey Bean Sportswear, that was um, owned by a big corporation and really then got into heavy sales, merchandising, marketing, and, and true well-rounded business, if you will, and um, and worked for a small company for a number of years and, and then actually um, – got a call one day from um, a gentleman who was running the Donna Karen business and asked if I would come over. So I joined her as, as a vice president at a, at a very young age. And um, how, and then, how young? Oh, I was like 27. You were a vice president at 27 years old. Yeah. Did yeah. you know what you were doing? Ab, you know, you know, it's funny. I tell my kids when you're alone in New York and you're young, I was working 80 hour weeks. So maybe I had only worked seven or eight years, but that was like 15 years. You know, I mean, that was, that was my life. I was living the dream. And so I knew, I knew everything, you know, I just would fill my mind. And, and, uh, and so, so I did, I mean, and I had a great relationship with her and with, um, you know, the gentleman running the business and just learning and growing and traveling the world. And, and uh, I always say that she taught me the right brain side of the business about fabrics and colors and, you know, true fashion. And, but, you know, then I, then you learn the left side of the business. Then I went to the Liz Claiborne Corporation and an amazing mentor, Paul Sharon, one of the world's greatest leaders. And, and, and he was not fashion, he was business. And so after having those incredible years with her and then moving over to a corporation where we would acquire businesses and integrate them, you know, California businesses like Juicy Couture. And, you know, we worked with incredible founders that had an amazing vision. So we would acquire their business, let them dream and take over the operational side. And it was, I mean, I've, I've been incredibly blessed every step along the way, but it's, it's a lot of work and you got to love what you do. 
When you talk to young people who are getting into the industry, for example, you went and worked for a menswear line, even though your thing was actually ideally getting into women's wear. Would you recommend that a young person starting out today potentially go to a brand where it might not be their type of brand? It's not their style. It's not their thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's in fashion. I think it's in media. Right. I'm sure I'm sure so many women would aspire to have your job. But to get there, they can't just immediately, you know, they've got to start out in a different industry, not even a different industry, but at a different level doing something. They might have to start out in sports or start out in. Right. But they're in. They're learning the medium, if you will, be it media or fashion. And so absolutely. I mean, you have to start somewhere. You know, I don't care if you're a great chef or a great musician. You don't fill a stadium overnight. You have to work your way up. You know, and I, I believe in the power of intention. I believe in, you know, dreaming and putting it out there and then working so hard towards it. And I don't think it's a coincidence when suddenly things start to fall into place. So you lead a total transformation at Burberry. You're playing at the top of your game and Apple comes to you and says, Hey, any interest in joining our company? <laughs> what went through your mind in those early conversations? Um, well, there actually weren't any early conversations for about the first year because I kept saying no. I mean, they were coming to you and saying please, and you were saying no. Well, you know, they have a search for an executive search firm, sure. And, and you know, and they called, and and um, I, like you said, I was—I mean, life was incredible. And I think as a woman, what happens too is not only is your career cr- incredible. If your marriage is good, going really, really well and you're juggling three kids and, you know, and, and I had the same thing. I had perfect. Finally, I thought I had, it can't get any better in New York. And then they called for the Burberry thing, right? It's like, no, I have it all figured out. Life is really good. But then you go through the motions and I, we end up in London. And so it's kind of the same thing. Now you're in London, you know, you have your home, you have three kids in school, you know, you, you're, you just acquired some other Burberry businesses back and told the board you're going to double the business in five years and you're bringing on new talent. And there's a loyalty, a loyalty to your team and to the business plan and to your family, everything. It's complicated. And, and it, you know, it's hard. It's hard to throw. Change is hard, right? And, and, but yet I think the thing for me is, and it was funny. I mean, when I went to the chairman of Burberry, um, because I'm loyal and I believe trust is a really important thing in people's lives. So before I ever met with Tim, I had a conversation with um, um, the Burberry chairman, and I didn't tell him anything important public company, but I simply said, you need to know, I need to think a lot this summer. I'm wondering, you know, if I was nearing the nine-year mark. And, and, uh, and it was so interesting because he just looked at me and he goes, don't tell me it's Apple. Wow. And I wouldn't tell him. Um, and I said, why do you say that? He said, because I don't think you would ever leave here for any other company. But I didn't tell him. And, and again, I kind of thought about it over the summer. And then, you know, when I decided that fall and right before board meeting and, and he said, I, I knew he said, you know, he, but he knows that I put, um, it's business, but it's also business for purpose. And, you know, at Burberry, we had created a foundation and we put 1% of the profits into the foundation, um, you know, to help kids to lean into the creative arts. We partnered with educational institutions all over the world. And he knew that that, that was important and to have a platform like Apple to make an impact, to do, um, to make a much greater impact than maybe you could make at a Burberry. And it wasn't about fashion or tech, not right. It was about the company, the values, and 
And I didn't want to wake up one day and say, wow, I wish I would have, you know, what, what, what could I have done? And so that's what sealed it in your head. You didn't want to think about what could be. You had to know. I read that in that meeting with Tim Cook or one of your early meetings with Tim Cook, you basically said to him, I'm not a techie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How did that go over? (laughs) Well, you know, it's so funny. I'll never forget that meeting because with his job, you would expect him to be, I don't want to say frenetic, but I mean, what a job. I mean, and, and, and I can be frenetic, but, um, you know, I try every morning to ground myself and to meditate. You meditate? And to calm myself before, absolutely. And I read every morning and just try and rise above it all, right? So I go into the fir- very first cup of coffee with him, and, and he has on blue jeans and tennis shoes, and, and he's kind of leaned back, and, and he's so calm. I mean, he has the biggest job in the world, and, and he's just so calm. And he would ask a question, and, uh, you know, when I would, an- uh, or when he said the techie, he said, he, you know, he said, he was kind of talking to me about what the role was, and I said, I just want to be really honest with you. I'm not a techie, and, and, and I'm not even a really great operator. And, and he just very calmly, you know, leaned back, and he said, you know, we have thousands of techies, engineers, I, you know, hardware, software, et cetera here. I, I, th- I think we're covered there. And, and he said, and as far as a, a great operator, last time I looked, we've got the most productive stores in the world. So I think we got a few of those too. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, then I went home and, and eventually when I told my daughter, um, you know, I had told the two older ones, they were heading to university and they were going to probably stay in London. But I had a, a daughter who was going to be a freshman in high school. And so when I told her, she looked at me, <laughs> the first thing she said was, oh man, mom, has he met you? <laughs> And I just looked at her and she goes, you know, like kind of meaning you're right. not a techie. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, he did. And he's not hiring me to do what you think he's hiring me to do. <laughs> what is it? What is it? How would you describe the culture of Apple? And in particular, how would you describe it as somebody from the outside world that isn't a techie? So the Apple culture, which is, in, which is great. And I think that I think you see and, and hear and feel that if you were to talk to Tim or any executives, it's based on values. And I think that's why the company is so in putting their values out there and right in the reports that they put out, et cetera. So it is a very, very purposeful values-based company. And, and I know you read it, but when you're in there, trust me. Now jump over to retail, which is about half of the company's employees. And one of my hesitancies in taking the job originally was because we had built such an incredible culture at Burberry. And I didn't dream that a culture like that would exist anywhere. And then you come into retail and, and it's so true. You know, when Steve originally was hiring the teams for the very first retail store 16 years ago, he told them their job was to enrich lives. And that has so stuck in retail all these years. I mean, it is such a service, servant-driven mentality, if you will, and, and such high EQ. Yes, high IQ in the stores, but high, high EQ. And so it just, for me at this scale, to think that, that there was another culture, there was another company that, that absolutely respected and treated customers the way I always felt that they should be treated. I, I, I was pleasantly surprised. From a career standpoint for you, what's been the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way? 
You know, it's it's interesting. As you um, when you start out your career, you have to do right. You have to do. You have to prove. And the you more have to you be an do, executor. You, exactly. And when you do that, the more you go up. But then all of a sudden, you reach a point where you have to lead, and you have to listen, and not always tell. And you have to ask questions and not just make assumptions. And the higher up you go and the more people that you have, you'll know less because it's impossible to know everything. And, but when you're at a different level, you can know everything, everything. And so I think, the, I think there's a lot of um, self-reflection that has to take place. And you have to, you have to feel very comfortable living in ambiguity um, knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know and building a brilliant team to do the things that you don't know. And then in each position, what is your job? You know, what is my job at Apple? Is what it, right? I mean, with all the stores, with all the operators. And so, and I think you have to get very comfortable on what that job is. And regardless of what anybody else says or what anybody else thinks, you have to stay in your lane and you have to stay very focused because you know what you know and have confidence in your instincts and what you know. Build a brilliant team around you. And then you end up with something like Michigan Avenue here in Chicago. Apple's new store on Michigan Avenue in Chicago is Angela's vision for the future of Apple retail brought to life. The goal wasn't just to create another store, but to build a place that's integrated into the community. Here's some of my tour with Angela and her thoughts on the changing landscape of retail. It is just so cool that we're here on the Chicago Riverfront. This is the first major Apple store in a decade. How is this the future of retail? How do you think of the future of retail? What does it look like? You know, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but I think the future of physical retail is building a lifelong relationship. When Steve opened the first store, he told all of the employees that their job was to enrich lives. And so how do we do that today? What's important today that the next generation needs to learn about? You know, in the world of automation, do we need to teach them to be better photographers and better musicians and, and how to code so they can create the next generation apps? And maybe that's stuff that, that Apple does better than anyone else. How do you feel when you look at this store and all of your work that's come together after all of this time? I mean, you feel, you know, it, it takes a village to do projects like this. And we have amazing, amazing partners. And I feel, I feel proud that we've had a vision and been able to unite so many people around that vision. And again, it's not just the building it's everything it does inside. How do you see this changing retail? I hope that it will have companies um, be more thoughtful and realize that retail's here to stay. All that retail is, is a place for people to go and it's to build a relationship and to have a connection. And honestly, whether it's your hairdresser, that's retail. Whether it's fashion, that's retail. And don't you tend to go back to someone who makes you feel good, who teaches you how to do things better? There is such a role where people need places to come together and to, and to continue. It's continuous learning forever, and, and things are just going to get faster and not feel like they're behind. So I, I hope this will be... I hope this will help lead the way in terms of what role retail for every company can play in every city. 
Before Angela started to change the role of retail, she had a pivotal moment in her career. That original turning point, that moment from being the executor and the doer and the hand up and work around the clock, the 80 hours a week, you know, that person who says yes to everything, then transitioning into more of a leader role. Where did that happen in your career? Mm-hmm. Burberry, you know, you're now the CEO. Nobody to blame. You're totally, you're 100% accountable. And all my friends, when I took the job, I mean, I, I'm still sitting with a country house in New York, upstate New York, because I was paranoid to sell it. My husband wanted to sell it. And all my friends kept sending articles in, telling me the probability of failure within six months, one year. Oh, by the way, the people are cheering in, in the background. The <laughs> that's the new store team coming in. <laughs> and I'll never forget one of the articles. It said that there was a 5% probability of, and if you made it for three years as a CEO, then you would probably make it. But there was only a 5% probability as a new CEO that you would be successful in that three-year time period. So I told my husband, don't sell the house. I need some, somewhere to go back to. I don't to. like these odds. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, but, but then you kind of forget about it. And, and I, you know, I'm the kind of person too where I always feel that, I feel that everything has a reason. You know, I don't feel I'm totally in control over my life. Um, I've been too blessed and too many incredible things have happened. And so I do also, I, I believe that, I believe there's a higher force and I believe that, you know, that sometimes you don't always want to do things and, and, uh, but, but you go with it and then it's incredible when things fall into place. And I think there's just lessons all along the way that you learn and they make you stronger and better. And you had no idea that it was a part of preparing you for what was next. What is the worst advice you have received in your career? It was funny, and I don't think I've maybe ever even said this, but the the worst advice, and I was I happened to be in New York at, at a big corporation, and uh, and I'm half right brain, so I'm passionate. I'm half left brain, linear analytical, but I'm half right brain, and and that means that's just not empathy. That's also creative thinking and vision, and and again, I can't help it. I'm wired that way, so I'm at a big job. And, uh, and one day, um, a big person in human resources, um, was in my office and said, and, and, and I knew there would probably be a transition at the company in a couple of years. And so for, for some reason they felt compelled to tell me that, um, that basically I wasn't CEO material and, um, and that I would probably have to dress more conservatively and I would have to not talk as emotionally with my hands and I had to be more... And, and I just listened. I'm young. And, and so they highly recommended that I go to um, Minneapolis and, and meet with this person who's going to help me become more CEO-like. And so I did. But after the first a few CEO hours... whisperer? It's <laughs> like, I didn't even know this was a job. Yeah, So there right. are people out there who help you become more CEO-like. Exactly. I guess. I only went, I was supposed to be there for a couple of days and I went for a couple of hours and they film you and they critique you and they, and, and by lunchtime the first day, I just looked at them and I said, I got to go. I don't want to be somebody that I'm not. I like me and I've been pretty successful so far being me. And I was raised, I mean, I'm in a really big family and 
you know, my mom liked me, my friends liked me. I like who, and if, and I don't want to be in a business. I don't care about a title or a position. You know, I have to wake up with me every morning and I want to be the best version of myself. I don't want to be this person you're trying to make me. So I'm really sorry, but I have to go. So I left and literally a month later got the call to become the CEO of Burberry. Wow. So I just think that to thyself be true. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. So many of the answers on worst advice are along those lines. It's someone telling you to be a little bit different, to do something outside of what is authentically you. And it's always the wrong answer. Thank you so much for coming on No Limits, Angela. No, it was fun. Thank you. And now it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of our listeners who's building something of her own. And our No Limits Entrepreneur this week is Anjali Bindra Patel. She is the co-founder of SeeingEyeToEye.com and the principal of Seeing Eye to Eye LLC, which is a virtual pen pal network that unites children and senior citizens. We loved this idea the minute we read about it. Anjali is based in Northern Virginia in the Washington, D.C. area, where she lives with her husband, Pranav, and their three children, nine-year-old Arav, eight-year-old Saranya, and five-year-old Ishana. In addition to running SeeingEyeToEye.com, she's also a licensed attorney who runs her firm's commercial real estate division, which actually specializes in helping entrepreneurs with the legalities of building and growing a business, something that's really come in handy for building Seeing Eye to Eye. The idea for Seeing Eye to Eye came to life when Anjali's parents had been visiting for a month and then they had to head back to their home in Ohio. She says that her three kids were so upset that their grandparents had to leave that they asked if they could have substitute grandparents in the meantime. Anjali spent the night pondering over the comment and thought there may actually be something to that idea. She found a lot of research about the benefits of intergenerational connections, but she didn't find a platform that made it so accessible. And so SeeingEyeToEye.com was born. Anjali helped her kids set up the site where people can sign up and be matched with someone after filling out a questionnaire. She says that they really decided to turn the concept into a business for two reasons. One, her children are very entrepreneurial and they're really motivated to take their kitchen table idea and turn it into a service that people could actually use. And two, they wanted to build a foundation for the youth of today to change the conversation around friendships and prove that age barriers are antiquated. We can be friends with 65-year-olds and 80-year-olds and 3-year-olds. They can all just mesh together and have a great conversation. As a lawyer who helps entrepreneurs create their businesses, Anjali says the initial steps to incorporation, setting up an operating agreement and the LLC were second nature to her. But she recommends if you're new to the process, there are actually a lot of free resources online that help you walk through the whole thing. You can start with doing a simple Google search on setting up an LLC. One of the biggest challenges so far for her company has been centered around online branding. She says that between herself and the kids, there are a lot of different opinions. So Anjali says they've recently contacted some female powerhouses in the branding field who are helping brainstorm new ideas. She says she's learned that they can't do it all on their own. If she could go back in time and give herself advice, Anjali says she would tell herself that unexpected obstacles are an everyday occurrence for entrepreneurs and if need be, pivot, change your direction, but never change your decision to reach your goal. Be ruthlessly persistent in chasing your dream. I love that. She also would tell herself to get used to being ignored and hearing no. Fall down 99 times, stand up 100. 
Great advice, Anjali. I love what you've built. I'm so excited to see where it goes from here. Congratulations on being our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week. We loved what you had to say when you reached out to us, and we're excited to see where you and your family take SeeingEyeToEye.com. Remember, if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the Entrepreneur of the Week, send me your nomination here at No Limits with RJ Podcast at gmail.com. I've been loving reading all of these. Uh, so many great ideas coming from all of you. And there's some really interesting new new businesses out there for the new year. So keep it coming. As always, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Rebecca Jarvis. Don't forget to use the hashtag No Limits. And of course, I want to give a shout out to the great team here that helps make this happen week after week. Our producer, Taylor Dunn, our editor, Michelle Boncardo, our research assistant, Annie Osakwe, and the team here at ABC Radio, Elizabeth Russo, David Rind, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelp, and Steve Jones. A big thank you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.